You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. We all come Well, hopefully, hopefully you can hear me. There's some weird, weird stuff happening with, uh, with Discord telling me that uh, couldn't hear me, but I guess you can. So, hello, Biz. Um, it is Thursday today, and normally we do a live book read. Um, I realize that I actually have to now record the final uh, read for the new book, but maybe I just want to check what the specs are. I don't want to end up doing it. Let's say over over the next several Thursdays, and then I've done like the wrong format or something. So I just have to check on that. Um, so I went to the bookshelf today, and um, and I just I don't know, just look for a book that would um, reach out and and grab my attention. And for whatever reason, I found a book called Backable: The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You written by Sunil Gupta. Now, I have a feeling, I, I'm like, there's there's a weird, there's, I, th- I think there's a weird story behind this book um, in the sense that I think Sunil was meant to come on the show and I think he has a rather famous brother from what I understand. And for whatever reason, I think he backed out maybe or he canceled or something like that. And that was it. So that's that's kind of my 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 rough recollection. Um but I just found the book and I was like, you know what? It was sent to me, I guess, as a complimentary a copy of the book um by um his publicist. And um I thought maybe I'll just go ahead and read the first chapter and see if if it's any good. <laughs> um the cover of the book says is a quote from Reed Hoffman from co-founder of LinkedIn. Whether you want to get ahead inside a company or build a startup from the ground up, this fascinating book is a must-read. Wow. And uh, who else is on the back of the book? Uh, Mike Krieger, co-founder of Instagram, um, quoted, Backable provides a super readable and actionable look at how to make your ideas take flight, whether you're pitching a brand new startup or an idea for your company's next product. You'll find a wealth of insights and stories throughout. So I thought maybe um, let's give it a whirl and let's see. And then I'll go and find out what happened. I have a feeling that he canceled on me now that I'm suddenly thinking about it. I think he has a rather famous brother. Um, and, uh, you know, in fact, in fact, um, his famous brother is, 
is um oh lord what's his name um uh, uh, uh famous gupta um who's on cnn um who was um who was actually uh um why can't i remember his name gupta cnn um sanjay gupta sanjay gupta is his brother i'm i'm pretty sure uh dr sanjay gupta is his brother and um so anyway just small world but i wouldn't want to paint it as stephen wright the comedian says so that maybe it's an an opportunity for for me to reach out to him so this book is called um this book is called backable and i'm going to start off with at the introduction i wanted to bail but it was too late in a few moments i'd in a few moments i'd be telling a story to a packed house of silicon valley overachievers it was a cautionary tale of a career that had gone off the rails through cancelled projects, missed promotions, and near-bankrupt startups. It was ugly, but also entertaining. So why was I having second thoughts? Because the story was my own. A few weeks earlier, I'd received a call from a restricted number. I answered it, hoping it was one of the many investors who hadn't got back to me, but instead the person introduced herself as the organizer of an event called FailCon, which stands for Failure Conference. It's funny, she said, you've been nominated twice to speak at our conference. Funny to her, maybe, but I wasn't laughing. I deepened my voice as much as a little Indian guy can and tried to express my credibility as a professional and an entrepreneur. I told her about my new startup idea. Rise was a telehealth service that matched you with a personal nutritionist right over your mobile phone. What I didn't tell her is that it wasn't going very well. I hadn't been able to recruit people to join me or find investors to fund the idea. She seemed to intuitively pick up on my desperation and mentioned that there might be investors in the conference, uh, in the audience. Well, same thing. That's all I needed to hear. I agreed right then and there to be the keynote speaker for FailCon. Moments before my speech, I began to question my life choices. How did things turn out this way? I grew up in suburban Michigan, finished college there, took an IT job in downtown Detroit, The pay was decent, but each day was the same as the last, troubleshooting issues, building spreadsheets, and maintaining databases. It was simple, mind-numbing work. I was waiting for someone to point in my direction and say, that kid's a star. Let's find a better way to make use of his talents. That didn't happen. In a sea of cubicles, I sat at my desk waiting to be discovered. Eventually, I did what some people do when they feel directionless. I went to law school. In my third year, I received a job offer from a chest-thumping corporate firm based in Midtown Manhattan. The signing bonus itself was twice the salary I was earning in Detroit, but I got a sinking feeling that taking the job would send me back to the same headspace I was in three years earlier, restless and bored. I might not have known exactly what I was looking for, but I knew this wasn't it. So I turned down the offer and began cold-calling people in Silicon Valley. I wanted to be part of a company I was building something, creating something. I eventually landed a job at Mozilla, the maker of Firefox. I was supposed to be working on legal matters, but I found myself drawn to the other side of the building, where the engineers and designers sat. I'd peek over their shoulders and ask if I could help with anything, no matter how small. Eventually, they gave me the chance to lead and launch a new product feature for Firefox. Collaborating with those engineers and designers to create something new fueled a fire in me, I'd finally found what I was meant to do. What I learned at Mozilla taught me enough to be recruited to a little-known startup 
as its first head of product development. That startup grew into Groupon. Within two years, we employed more than 10,000 people around the globe. We were making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. We were growing faster than Google, faster than Facebook, faster than Apple. A Forbes magazine cover named Groupon the fastest growing company dot, 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 ever. The company went public in the largest IPO by a U.S. internet company since Google. Then it all came crashing down. Within one year, Groupon lost nearly 85% of its market value, plunging from a high of $13 billion to less than $3 billion. The co-founder and CEO, Andrew Mason, who hired and took a chance on me, was fired and replaced. It was time for me to leave Groupon too. After years of working inside other startups, I realized what I really wanted but but had been afraid to do was to start my own. I now had the experience and what I believed was a winning idea, but I was struggling to get other people excited about the vision. Meanwhile, every day I'd read about new founders receiving funding and wonder, why not me? Even in Silicon Valley, the land of ideas, I was starting to feel the same frustration I'd felt sitting in a cubicle in Detroit. I was waiting for someone to pay attention, waiting to be discovered. More than a year later, standing stage left at FailCon, I felt my phone vibrate. It was my brother, Sanjay. See, there there you go, Sanjay Gupta. He's an Emmy Award-winning television reporter, New York Times best-selling author, and a neurosurgeon to boot. I'm still trying to make my dad proud while he's done enough to make an entire subcontinent of fathers proud. Call you back, I texted. I, too, was very busy. I was about to keynote a conference on failure. I got through my speech as quickly as possible, scanning the crowd opportunistically for investors, I somehow missed the reporter scribbling notes. More than a year passed, and I'd completely forgotten about FailCon. By that point, I'd recruited a small team to work with me on Rise, but the idea still hadn't gained traction. We were struggling to find customers and rapidly running out of money. My co-founder and I needed to raise funding so that we could expand our team, release a great product, and build fruitful, fruitful partnerships. And if we didn't find that money soon, my startup dream was over. Then something happened that changed everything. It was a Saturday morning and I overheard my wife, Lena, on the phone with her mother. Now, we're not moving home, mom, she said. Yes, I know San Francisco is very expensive. When I walked into the room, Lena was holding the day's New York Times open to a full-length story on failure with my face at the top. I'd seen mugshots that were more flattering. The piece went viral. If you Googled failure at the time, one of your top results would be a full-length Times article featuring me. I'd spent an entire career trying to create or trying to craft an image of success. Now I was the poster child for defeat. My inbox was jammed with consolation messages. My parents offered to help pay that month's rent. Old law school professors reached out to help me find a real job. Friends I hadn't spoken to in years simply messaged, Are you okay? Realizing I could no longer hide behind a fake-it-till-you-make-it attitude of success, I decided to give this new identity a try. I began emailing highly successful people using the Times article to break the ice. I'd write things like, as you can see from the article below, I don't know what I'm doing. Would you be willing to grab coffee and give me some advice? It worked. That article paved the way to hundreds of open, honest conversations with fascinating people, Founders of unicorn status startups, producers of Oscar-winning films, culinary icons, members of Congress, executives at iconic companies like Lego and Pixar, even military leaders at the Pentagon. In the end, I was left with a life-altering discovery. 
People who change the world around them aren't just brilliant, they're backable. They have a seemingly mysterious superpower that lies at the intersection of creativity and persuasion. When backable people express themselves, we feel moved. When they share an idea, we take action. You probably know someone who seems to be naturally backable. For the record, I'm not one of those people. I'm an introvert by nature. I look comically young for my age, and I'm prone to caving under pressure, like the time I tanked an interview with Jack Dorsey. I was interviewing for a product development role within the Twitter founder's newest company, Square. By the time we sat down together, I'd spent years leading product teams, yet I couldn't give a coherent answer to any of his questions, not even the softballs. I was anxious, sweaty, and tongue-tied. During our 30 minutes together, I watched Dorsey's smile fade to neutral and eventually sink into straight confusion. I was qualified for the role, but I didn't get the job. We've all had our fair share of Dorsey moments when something sounded exciting inside your head but uninspiring when it left your mouth. It can feel a lot like trying to insert a crumpled dollar into a vending machine. But your dollar is worth the same as a crisp, clean bill. We are all within striking range of becoming backable. We just need to make some adjustments to our style without losing our edge, without sacrificing what makes us who we are. Inside this book are those adjustments, seven surprising changes that course-corrected my life and career. By taking these steps, I went from feeling embarrassed to speak inside team meetings to confidently pitching ideas inside the offices of people like Michelle Obama and Tim Cook. I went from being the face of failure for the New York Times to being named the new face of innovation by the New York Stock Exchange magazine. I went from being rejected by every investor I pitched to raising millions of dollars. The Today Show featured Rise and Apple named us the best new app of the year. The Obama White House chose us to be its partner for tackling obesity. And ultimately, one medical, a thriving company in Rutan IPO, acquired Rise for multiple times its original value. Once I realized the power of these adjustments, I couldn't keep them to myself. I had to share it with the world, and not just entrepreneurs, but people from all walks of life, from physicians to musicians, educators to fashion designers, the artist who wants to be featured by a favorite gallery, the accountant who needs a client to act on his recommendation, the nurse who has a new method for lowering a patient's risk of addiction to pain medications. Today, I teach the seven steps to becoming backable in hospitals, companies, charities, and studios. I joined the faculty at Harvard University to teach students how to launch backable careers. Because I'm convinced we all have a brilliant idea tucked away somewhere, yet most of us are afraid to share it and have it dismissed. We all know how it feels to be unseen or, un- or ignored, to feel like we don't have what it takes. Untapped genius is not just inside you, it's everywhere, and it comes at a huge cost to our well-being, to our society, and even to human life. The morning the Space Shuttle Challenger was launched, NASA engineer Bob Ebeling pounded his car's steering wheel and with tears in his eyes said, everyone's going to die. The day before, Ebeling had sounded the, the alarm that the cold temperature expected overnight would stiffen the rubber O-ring seals, uh, the rubber O-ring seals, causing them to malfunction. He assembled the data, called a meeting and attempted to persuade his colleagues to delay the launch. It didn't work. 37 seconds after takeoff, the shuttle disintegrated, killing all seven crew members, including 
Krista McAuliffe, who would have been the first teacher to travel to space. Ebeling spent the rest of his life blaming himself for his inability to convince the people in that room. Before his death, he told NPR, I think that's one of the mistakes God made. I think that's one of the mistakes God made. He shouldn't have picked me for that job. Compare Ebeling for a moment to Billy McFarland, who convinced celebrities, governments, and investors to dump millions of dollars into an idea called the Fire Festival. McFarland's pitch promised the world's hottest musicians white sand beaches and five-star accommodations. Instead, when guests arrived, they were directed to a disaster relief tent, given a cheese sandwich, and struggled to find clean drinking water. Today, McFarland is serving a six-year prison sentence for fraud, and people are still scratching their heads, wondering how an unknown founder with an, unsex- with an unsuccessful track record convincing reputable people to give him $26 million in funding. The world would have been a better place if we could transport Billy McFarlane's persuasiveness into people like Bob Ebling. That's why I wrote this book. We need more high-integrity people who know how to sell a good idea. Uh, and... And obviously, Billy, McMa- Billy McFarland, I'm guessing, is really wasn't a high-integrity person. Um, he just knew how to sell. So, you know, uh, Damyanti Hingorani, a woman whom Time magazine called a groundbreaker, is one of my favorite backable stories. Hingorani spent her early childhood as a, refug- uh, as a refugee near the border between Pakistan and India. She lived in a home without running water or electricity, yet still managed to teach herself how to read. And the first book she read from cover to cover was the biography of Henry Ford. That book inspired a dream, some would say an impossible one, for a young girl in that particular place and time. Ingorani wanted to become an engineer building cars for Ford Motor Company. She was fortunate to have parents who believed in her, and they saved every penny they had to get her on a boat to America. Years later, on the day she graduated from Oklahoma State University, she boarded a train to Detroit, ready to apply for her dream job. But this was the 1960s, and while Ford Motor Company was still in its heyday, employing thousands of engineers, not a single one of them was a woman. So when Hingarani finally found herself in a room with a hiring manager, he told her in a polite Midwestern kind of way, I'm sorry, we don't have any female engineers working here. Deflated, Hingarani picked up her slightly crumpled resume, grabbed her purse her purse, and got up to leave the room. But then something clicked. It was as if she suddenly remembered everything it had taken to make it this far, all the sacrifices she had made that her parents had made. She turned around, looked the hiring manager directly in his eyes and told him her story. Reading about the Model T late at night near a kerosene lamp, waving goodbye to her parents one last time as she boarded the ship not knowing if she'd ever see them again, bicycling off campus to use the restroom because her engineering college didn't have one for women. All of it was to be here in this very room. Then she said, if you don't have any female engineers, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. It was in that meeting inside a plain looking office that a middle-aged manager from suburban Michigan decided to take a chance on a 24-year-old refugee from the India-Pakistan border. And that's how, on August 7th, 1967, Damianti Hingorani became Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. In the years that followed, 
Ingarani became a guiding light for immigrants who too wanted to believe in a better day. She helped reshape an industry's hiring practices and mentored women of color inside Ford. When she retired after 30 years, 35 years within the company, she became an inspiring force for Girls Who Code, an organization that has provided technology training to more than 300,000 girls around the world. Ingarani changed everything for the workforce, for immigrants, for women. She also changed things for me. If Damyanti Hingorani hadn't inspired the hiring manager in that room, if she hadn't made herself backable, I wouldn't be here to write this book. And that is because Damyanti Hingorani is my mom. Ah, I didn't realize that. What a beautiful little, what a beautiful uh, little sting in the tail. I knew something was coming, and I was like, "Wait a second, um, amazing." When I struggled to be seen, when I literally when i was literally a top research a top search result for failure it was my mom who pushed me to keep going and it was my mom who made me understand that the opposite of success isn't failure it's boredom that's a money quote huh the opposite of success isn't failure it's boredom that you can't wait to be asked to share your ideas because that day may never come that in order to succeed You need to get out and inspire people to see in you what you see in yourself. This book will show you how. Step one, convince yourself first. It was 1969 and President Richard M. Nixon was slashing budgets to pay for the Vietnam War. The public broadcasting service was at the top of his list. PBS had been brought to life by Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, but Nixon viewed it as artsy and unnecessary. His cut required approval from the Senate, which seemed all but a formality because the chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Communications, Senator John Pastore, was a proponent of the war. The the only thing standing in the way was a mild-mannered man who was on a television show that Senator Pastore had never heard of. I know who's coming here, and so do you. Uh, As the TV host quietly waited to give his testimony, Pastore found it hard to hide his aggression. All right, Rogers, he said grumpily, you have the floor. Rogers was none other than Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You might know what happened next. Rogers secured PBS's future with a seven-minute speech that has been the subject of articles, books, and viral videos. He is described as captivating and compelling. Iconic shows like Sesame Street and Cosmos may not have ever come to be had it not been for that single speech. And yet, if you go back and watch Roger's speech, you might get a different impression. He nervously shifts in his seat and fumbles with his papers. He speaks with a flat, monotone voice and doesn't make use of hand gestures. In many ways, his mannerisms are the opposite of what you'd learn from public speaking courses like Toastmasters or Dale Carnegie, So what was it about his speech that made it so influential? When I began writing this book, I assumed I'd find a certain style to how backable people communicate their ideas, a way of utilizing eye contact, hand gestures, and pacing to charm their audience. However, after digging deeper, I came to realize that this is not the case at all. Watch the number one TED Talk of all time, and you might be surprised to see Sir Ken Robinson stand with a slight slouch and a hand in his pocket while he explores whether schools kill creativity. View Elon Musk unveiling the future of SpaceX 
And you might agree with Inc. Magazine's headline that he fails public speaking 101. Search the transcript of the original iPhone launch, and you might be surprised to find that Steve Jobs said, uh, at least 80 times. Yet Robinson has held the top TED spot for years. Musk's 40-minute presentation has about 2 million views, and Jobs' iPhone launch is one of the most widely discussed product announcements of all time. What moves people isn't charisma, but conviction. That's a good quote, huh? What moves people isn't charisma, but conviction. Backable people earnestly believe in what they're saying. And they simply let that belief shine through whatever style feels most natural. If you don't truly believe in what you're saying, there is no slide fancy enough, no hand gesture compelling enough to save you. If you want to convince others, you must convince yourself first. Preparing my pitch for Rise, I spent a lot of time focusing on the bells and whistles of the presentation. I pulled together an impressive-looking slide deck with beautiful visuals. I came up with attention-grabbing taglines. I practiced hand gestures in front of a mirror. But pitches aren't monologues. They're a back and forth, typically with people who know how to ask tough questions. And while my initial 15-minute presentation typically went fine things tended to unravel in the next 45 minutes of Q&A. Now I understand why. Peter Shernan is a legendary media executive who has produced Oscar-nominated films like Hidden Figures, The Great Showman, and Ford vs. Ferrari, while also investing in startups like Pandora, Headspace, and Barstool Sports. Shernan told me that when he's undecided on whether to back an idea, he'll, he'll sometimes look at the filmmaker or entrepreneur and say, That's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Then he'll wait to see if they back down or show conviction. Had that happened to me when I was first pitching Rise, I would have dropped into the fetal position. I may have had fancy slides, but I didn't have high conviction. I was trying to convince others without convincing myself first. When I realized how important that was to being backable, I set out to learn how backable people build conviction in a new idea. So I want to just uh, take uh, a second because, you know, the, 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 the one, like I'm going to keep reading obviously, but the one interesting caveat is that, you know, there are people out there though that are narcissists. There are these chronic backable people, maybe it will be revealed later, that are snake oil salesmen. Um, but I think, you know, to the point that the book is making already is they have convinced themselves, Right. So the reason they convince you is because they've absolutely convinced themselves. And they may very well be, you know, I mean, if you look at the fire Festival as well, um, there are people that could, as they say, you know, sell, sell, you know the, um, sell, you know, I guess the politically incorrect term would be ice to, you know, let's say uh, native inhabitants of the North Pole or Antarctica. Um, probably North Pole is politically correct. Um, but, you know, I mean... Clearly, there's this idea of like being a great salesman or salesperson as opposed to something else that, and I feel that this is a little bit bigger, you know, than that. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, make that note, um, which is it's going to be interesting to see, you know, to see what happens um, because, you know, the other thing that VCs would probably. Uh, ask, I guess, is they'd say, you know, they they ultimately, and and I don't think it's an inconsistency, but you know, a VC will typically 
you know, back, as they say, back the person, not the idea, right? So I guess the reconciliation, and there is a reconciliation here, is this is not somebody that, that's, you know, going to die on the sword and, and you know, and die about the idea and not accept criticism or feedback or, or a different perspective. These are people that actually are going to die on the sword for themselves, basically, for what they believe, right? So at the end of the day, I think, I think, and I'm thinking, like in terms of connecting the dots here, is that what the VC wants to see in this particular case is not someone that's so inflexible and wed to the idea above all else. They're just, you know, wed to themselves, you know, and they have the conviction of buying and believing in, in, in themselves and that idea. But, but there's still got to be that openness, right, to, to feedback and growth, etc. And And I think, you know, clearly, you know, what, what Sunil, I guess, is saying in this particular case is you don't want someone that's just going to, you know, crumple, fold and crumple up, right, and into that fetal position. Someone that has no conviction that, like, literally you can just, you know, you, you blow and they fall over. Um, you want someone that's going to kind of stand and even push back. Um, but I do think on the other end of that continuum, you still are looking for someone, you know, someone who's backable, is someone who still has to have that. There still has to be a degree of humility and openness, you know, and and uh, and ability to change. Um, I would add. I mean, I, I maybe he disagree, but that's what I would say. That's my build. Um, schedule incubation time on February fifteenth, twenty ten, in the Basque countryside of northern Spain, a two-star Michelin restaurant named Mugaritz burnt to the ground. It took firefighters two hours and five sets of equipment to put the flames up, but it was too late. The essential parts of Mugaritz's restaurant, including its kitchen, were destroyed and would take several months to rebuild. But despite having no source of income during its costly during this costly restoration, the owner, Chef Andoni Adurez, continued to pay his 40 employees. Adurez was beloved by chefs around the world, and when word got out that Mugaritz was on the verge of closing permanently, restaurants from Japan to Venezuela stepped in to help him cover reconstruction expenses. Still, Adurez knew that once Mugaritz reopened, the restaurant would need to thrive in order to make up for all that was lost. The chef pulled together his team and announced that not a moment, that not a moment over the following four months would go to waste. They didn't have a restaurant, customers, or even a full kitchen. The only thing that they had left was their ideas. They would use this time to go back to the drawing board to reflect on what they had learned to bring forth concepts that had previously seemed impossible. Four months later, when Mugaritz reopened its doors, Adurez and his team had reinvented the restaurant from the way they set the table to the very core of their culinary experience. Prior to the fire, you'd received two menus, one with more classical cuisine, the other with more adventurous dishes. After the fire... Mugaritz ditched the safe menu so that when you walked into the restaurant, it was all adventure. Why? Because during those months, the team assembled so many creative, unique offerings that they no longer had a desire to play it safe. A decade later, Adarez told me how these, how those months were an inflection point for the restaurant and for his culinary philosophy. Destruction and creation go hand in hand, he said. The fire actually made us rebuild ourselves by being more faithful to ourselves, to what we really wanted to be. That's why, as the one-year anniversary of the fire approached, 
Adderas did something that confused foodies and frustrated a few unknowing tourists. He voluntarily closed Muguritz again for several months to reinvent their menu, just as they had after the fire. Since then, Muguritz has shut its doors for three months every single year, and for each of those years, Muguritz has been named one of the top 10 restaurants in the world, the only one to stay on the list for 14 years. Backable people tend to behave a lot like Chef Adura's. They're constantly tracking ideas on their phone or notepad and then taking them into an incubation period. Instead of rushing out to share them immediately, they nurture and build their ideas behind the scenes. Bill Gates, whom we'll discuss again later, takes think weeks before he goes off the grid with a pile of books and a goal to open himself up to new ideas. Paul Graham, one of the founders of Y Combinator, a startup accelerator that spawned ideas like Instacart, Stripe, DoorDash, and Dropbox, says that instead of rushing out to investors, founders would be much better would be much better off if they took the quiet time to understand why their startup is worth investing in. To me, this also is a little bit of a, by the way, an introduction, um, uh, a contradiction, um, because you know a lot of popular. I think um, belief or, you know, opinion is that you should just, you know, like done is the enemy of perfect and, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff love, you know, of being able to just, just do it and, you know, and, and, and don't hold, you know, stop trying to be so perfect. Hello, Will. Stop trying to be so perfect and just, you know, just execute, just do it, just get out there. You know, 80% is, is good enough. Um, so this is a little bit of a contradiction to me, um, in a sense. But you know, it's an interesting triangulation build. And again, I'm not sure that that this book is saying that Backable is saying you got to go into hiding and not share anything and and slow it down. But it's saying a little bit is good to actually you know take the time off to think, to plan, to to prepare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so um, I just wanted to mention that uh, as well. Um, I'll just read the last part again. Um, so um, uh, Paul Graham, one of the founders of Y uh, Combinator, says that instead of rushing out to investors, found, to investors, founders would be better, much better off if they took the quiet time to understand why their startup is worth investing in. And I agree with that statement, obviously. Um, when an idea first enters your mind, it's not fully formed and certainly not prepared to interact with the real world because... But because we're excited about the possibility, we make the mistake of inviting people in when the idea isn't ready. Every time I'm fired up about a new idea, I feel an impulse to share it immediately. But at this premature stage, even the most positive intentioned reaction can crush the spirit of an idea. If you don't get the reaction you're looking for, it can instantly deflate your energy. Moreover, you haven't taken the time to articulate what's inside your head. So you share it in a half-baked way, expecting a fully-baked response. When that reaction doesn't come, it saps your enthusiasm. Imagine you you wake up one morning, grab a cup of coffee, and out of nowhere an idea hits you. Your eyes brighten, you jump in your car, and you head into the office where you bump into your manager, Trisha. You can't help telling her that you came up with the most interesting idea. She doesn't interrupt, so you begin to share your brand new way for people on the team to give one another feedback, it would be anonymous, super simple to use, or through text messaging. Best of all, you wouldn't have to wait for performance reviews to figure out what your team thinks of you. At this point, your voice is inflecting and you're smiling at the genius 
of your idea. Then it happens. Trisha asks, um, how would the system know when to gather feedback from your colleague? You think for a moment, that's an interesting question. You say, well, I guess it wouldn't happen every few months, or maybe we could automatically trigger a notification based on, you know what, I've got to think about that some more. Trisha stares at you blankly and gives you a deadpan. Hmm. Years of coaching people inside companies has made me realize something. Most new ideas aren't killed inside conference rooms. They're killed inside hallways and break rooms. Wow, that's a pretty pretty key quote. Um, they're, they're shared before they really had a chance to mature. And when we don't get the reaction we want, we tend to put our concepts inside a drawer. But it's not, our, it's not that our idea was bad. It simply wasn't ready to share. Incubation time isn't critical just for entrepreneurs. Around 2017, for the first time in a decade, Lego was seeing a drop in sales and profits. Remy Marcelli, a self-educated advertising exec who had been hired a year before to head up the Danish toy maker's in-house marketing and communications agency, was asked by the company's leadership to help find an answer. But instead of offering a clear picture for the path ahead, he completely shook things up at the 80-year-old company. I don't jump to conclusions. I jump to experimentation, Marcelli told me. That's why amid a slowdown, Marcelli proposed that the company also slow down. He advocated for a full two-month pause on all operations in his division so that he and his team could take incubation time and come back with an idea. With hesitant approval from management, Marcelli approached his pause a lot like Chef Adura's. At Mugaritz, the culinary team would begin the incubation period with around 100 ideas and ended feeling convinced by and, and ended feeling convinced by around 50. These tend to be the dishes that Adoris considers the most thought-provoking, the ones that will fully tap each of your senses. In one of the incubation periods, Adoris and, and, and team deliberately exposed fresh fruit to edible fungus. Later, Instagram was ablaze with photos of rotten fruit that tasted like dessert called Noble Rot. I guess that's the name of today's, uh, of today's show would be called Noble Rot. If you know, you know. Just like Adoras, Marcelli and his Lego team trimmed a laundry list of ideas down to a handful, including one that was sure to rattle some people inside the company. For nearly the company's entire history, the various Lego lines, each in its own geography, would create its own siloed marketing campaigns targeted to their very specific customer market. But during their incubation time, Marcelli and the team built conviction behind the idea to run bigger top-level promotional campaigns created around passion points even though these campaigns wouldn't be customized for each line or gender or age, they would be less formulaic and they believed would generate more buzz. By the end of the pause, Marcelli had run enough experiments and built enough conviction that this was the best way to showcase new ideas coming out of the Lego brand. Marcelli was about to propose breaking a formula that had worked for years. Had he shared this idea before taking incubation time, it almost certainly would have been shot down. Had he even hinted at the idea up front, he might have been told not to waste time pursuing it, but by not blurting out his idea, 
and instead giving it the time and space it needed to be tested and improved, Marcelli and his team entered the room confident in their conclusions. They broke a multi-decade tradition inside a dormant industry player by convincing themselves first. Now, I, I would also say, again, you know, my, my, point, uh, my point is, and I, I'm curious, right? It, it's possible that with all of that prep and planning and conviction that the idea still could have been shot down. So let's see, let's see what happens. Uh, Slick says, I use a black book to write down any, entrepreneur, any entrepreneurial ideas that might come to mind to revisit at another time. I think it's such an important point that we should have this tiny little book that like almost like the size of a wallet that's just even smaller, that just the size of a credit card, that just, you know, in a tiny little pencil that just sits with us wherever we go. Um, or just get really good at taking voice notes and transposing them. But the ability to just, you know, capture these moments um, when they arise. And I think what the book is telling us is then take the time to like, you know, make sure that they aren't, I guess, you know, half-baked. Um so where do we go? Um, I don't even know where. Um, I forget where we were. I think we just uh, turned the page maybe. Um, it's so funny. I'm suddenly reading this stuff and going, did I just read this already? Um I'm just going to read the thing again. I just completely like blacked out. It's the weirdest thing. Um, just like Adoris, Marcelli and his Lego team trimmed a laundry list of ideas down to a handful, including one that was sure to rattle. Maybe this is where I stopped. This is the weirdest thing. I just completely like went blank um, because uh, after noble rot. Just like Adoris, Marcelli and his Lego team trimmed a laundry list of ideas down to a handful, including one that was sure to rattle some people inside the company. For nearly the, the company's entire history, the various Lego lines, each in its own geography, would create their own siloed marketing campaigns targeted to their very specific customer market. But during their incubation time, Marcelli and the team built conviction around the idea to run bigger, top-level promotional campaigns created around passion points. Even though these campaigns wouldn't be customized for each line or gender or age, they would be less formulaic and they believed would generate more buzz. By the end of the pause, Marcelli had run enough experiments and built enough conviction that this was the best way to showcase new ideas coming out of the Lego brand. Marcelli was about to propose breaking a formula that had worked for years. Had he shared this idea before taking incubation time, it would most certainly have been shot down. Had he even hinted at the idea up front, he might have been told not to waste time pursuing it. But by not blurting out his idea and instead giving it the time and space it needed to be tested and improved, Marcelli and his team entered the room confident in their conclusions. They broke a multi-decade tradition inside a dormant, a dominant industry player by convincing themselves first. With a new way of working, Lego reversed its revenues and profits from declining in 2017 to a period of growth in 2018 and 2019, even as the toy landscape had become more challenging with retailers like Toys R Us closing. And if you visit Lego's headquarters today, you'll see many incubation periods happening across the company from the innovation team to the IT department. I wish I'd taken more incubation time for Rise. After coming up with the idea, I was so excited that I couldn't wait to share it with others. Within a couple of weeks, I was reaching out to potential investors, asking them to meet for coffee. If you were to look back on the year when I struggled to raise money, 
You'd find that I spend more than 80% of my time on the investor pitch deck and the remaining time incubating the actual concept. I spend almost all my time working to convince investors and very little time working to convince myself. Reverse that. Spend at least 80% of your time convincing yourself, then the remainder pulling together the slides, business plans, or whatever else you need to convince a backer. You're much better off walking into a room with high conviction and low production value material than the other way around. One thing to note about both Chev Aduras and Remy Marcelli is that the incubation time had an end date. It wasn't endless. Chef Aduras sent a fixed day to reopen Mugaritz, and Marcelli had a scheduled time to present his strategy to Lego's top brass. Without establishing a deadline for your incubation time, it's easy to sit on an idea without ever pushing it forward. As a matter of discipline, backable people avoid an, avoid an as-long-as-it-takes approach and mark a deadline on their calendars. By then, either you have conviction for your idea or it's time to move on. I've seen this work across industries. Troy Carter, a record producer and investor who's worked with stars like Tupac Shakur and Will Smith, says he backed Lady Gaga because she had a sense of urgency and focus. It turned out that it turned out that was because Gaga was on a fixed timeline. She had just been dropped by Def Jam Records and was sleeping on a grandmother's couch. Gaga's father saw her saw his daughter struggling and gave her one year to land another recording contract or she'd have to go back to school. It worked. Not only is Lady Gaga one of the world's all-time best-selling artists, she's also one of Time Magazine's top 10 college dropouts. Steer into objections. While working at Mozilla, I built a startup on the side called the Kahani Movement. We made documentary films easier to create with open-source software. It was a fun idea that got admitted to South by Southwest, but I never figured out a way to monetize it. It did, however, put me on the radar of Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, who was also passionate about new ways to open-source creativity. My idea died, but Hoffman became a friend and mentor. When Rise was being rejected by investors, Hoffman shared one of the keys to his success in the pitch room. There will, be one, there will be one to three issues that are potentially problematic for your financing, Hoffman said to me. Address them head on. Hoffman had put this into practice as a junior level employee inside Apple. I wanted to be a product manager, but I didn't have the, the right background, he told me. That was a problem because the hiring team was inundated with qualified candidates. Hoffman knew that trying to outcompete the others based on his resume wasn't going to work. So when he approached James Isaacs, Apple's eWorld Group Head of Product Management, uh, Hoffman, to- Hoffman told me that he decided to try something new. He steered straight into the obvious objection. Look, I know I don't have any product management experience, he said. So what if I pulled together a detailed document outlining my ideas? If I did that, would you take a look? Isaacs agreed. And a few days later, Hoffman returned with his ideas. The document clearly wasn't written by someone with highly relevant experience, but it showed Isaacs that Hoffman had real potential. That was the start of Hoffman's career in product management. By addressing his lack of experience head-on, rather than trying to hide it, he turned a potential skeptic into one of his earliest professional backers, someone who helped him lay the foundations for his career. Years later, when Hoffman co-founded LinkedIn, he knew investors' biggest concern would be revenue. 
They were still licking their wounds from the dot-com bust, he said. Investors were now focused on proven business models, and we didn't have a dime of revenue. But instead of veering away from the revenue question, he hit it directly. He began his pitch by acknowledging the lack of revenue and then quickly showcased three potential ways LinkedIn could make money from ads, listings, and subscriptions. By addressing the objection before the investors could even bring it up, Hoffman earned enough trust that he would be able to figure it out. So he began the pitch by acknowledging the lack of revenue, and then he said he showed three potential ways that they could make money. One final note from Hoffman for now is to hit the objection sooner rather than later. You have the most attention from investors in the first minutes, he said. Most investors arrive with questions, and if you proactively show you understand their principal concerns, you earn their attention for the rest of the pitch. Though I typically use slides to to pitch a new idea, I don't think they're very useful for helping me prepare. Slides that you steer away from the objections because you can hide behind high-level bullets and fancy visuals. This is one of the reasons Jeff Bezos did away with slides during his senior team meetings. As Amazon grew beyond books, Bezos was constantly being pitched new ideas by employees for new product lines, income streams, and technology capabilities. But Bezos, who's known to be hypercritical inside the pitch room, felt that people were unprepared to answer his questions. So he shifted Amazon's pitch process from slides to a written narrative. If you had a new concept to share with Bezos, you needed to explain it in a thoughtful three to five page document using full sentences and paragraphs. If someone builds a list of bullet points in Word, that would be just as bad as PowerPoint, said Bezos when he announced the change. Senior executives who were there for the shift from slides to narratives told me that while the quality of the ideas didn't change, the quality of the explanations became significantly stronger. One former Amazon executive told me, after writing a narrative, I always felt better prepared to answer Jeff's questions. While bullets share what you believe, fully formed paragraphs force you to explain why. That's a great quote. While bullets share what you believe, fully formed paragraphs force you to explain why. While I write, while I write a new narrative, I force myself to come up with at least three key objections to my idea and then answer them in fully formed sentences. Now that I can't use bullets, I'm forced to use words like because and actually explain my thinking. I rarely share my narratives with anyone else. They're simply my personal tool to convince myself first. When I began pitching Rise, I did my best to avoid the objections, hoping investors wouldn't bring them up. They always did, and when I couldn't answer them, they became gotcha moments that completely sank my idea. After hearing Hoffman's story, I took a pause in my fundraising process to think about the critics and steer directly into the objections. Rise matched customers with personal nutritionists, and while I had a solid plan for recruiting nutritionists, I didn't know how we were going to find customers. Advertising in the weight loss space is expensive and inundated with competition from big brands like Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig. So I set aside two weeks of incubation time to come up with scrappier ways to reach customers. Like Chef Adura's, I wanted to test a list of ideas quickly. One initial thought was to have doctors refer patients to us. But after surveying more than a dozen doctors, I discovered that they were already being bombarded for referrals by lots of healthcare startups. I moved on to testing other avenues and eventually found one with real potential. 
One of my friends had just run a race called the Tough Mudder. He showed me photos of thousands of people gathered at the starting line of one of the races, one of their races outside Chicago. I did some research and realized that marathons, triathlons, and races like the Tough Mudder were growing at a breakneck pace. What if we match people who were training with their own personal nutritionists? I began cold calling organizers of races and received positive responses. I ran a lightweight Facebook ad focused on races and found that people were clicking through. When I went back out to investors, I no longer avoided the custom acquisition question. I steered straight into it. I first acknowledged that this was still an unsolved problem, but then showed the trend line of races like the Tough Mudder and the results of the test we'd run. It was by no means a perfect answer to the objection, but by steering into it rather than avoiding it, I gained credibility and settled into questions that would have otherwise nagged as uh, nagged at potential investors. Instead, I captured their attention for the stronger points of my pitch. Isn't that true, by the way? Like, um, don't they say that um, you steer into a skid? You know, when your car loses um, loses traction, you steer into it, not not against it as well. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe that's an interesting analogy. Um, I don't know if we'll get to the end of the chapter, but I can try. Uh, Throw away work. Uh, Let's see how we go. Um, Hey, Matt. Um, Selman Rushdie uh, is a best-selling author, has won the Booker Prize, and was knighted by the Queen of England for his services to literature. He's also a personal favorite. When I was in law school in Chicago, I discovered that Rushdie was passing through town. I frantically scoured the web for his email address and pleaded with him to meet me for coffee. He kindly relented and gave me 15 minutes between meetings. I could tell he regretted his decision when the first question I asked was, how do you get inspired to write? He took a moment to make direct eye contact so that I would remember what he was about to say. I don't get inspired to write. I just write. Rushdie went on to tell me that he sits down at his desk every morning just like anyone else. Most of what he produces isn't usable, but buried in each day's pile is a small pill he's convinced is worth keeping. Over the years, he's strung those pills together to create pages, chapters, and more than a dozen novels. Working through a new idea is an active process. It's not simply batting things around in your head. It's actually starting your project through writing, drawing, lines of code, or whatever, so that you have enough to take a step back and ask, am I heading in the right direction? One of the reasons this is hard for people, including me, is because the answer might be no, and then we'll we'll feel like we've wasted our time. When I was six years old, I visited my family in New Delhi. They just bought their first television set, a black and white TV with a bunny ears antenna wired up to the roof of the house. The connection was always a bit fuzzy, so my cousins and I would race to the roof together, adjust the bunny ears, and then race back down the stairs to observe the result. But sometimes adjusting the bunny ears wasn't enough. No matter how we tweaked them, there was still some fuzz on the TV. On those occasions, we needed to move the antenna to a completely different spot on the roof and start the adjustments from scratch. Most of us are afraid to put things down on paper because we might see the result and realize we can't just play around with the bunny ears. We have to move the antenna and start over. But a big part of convincing yourself is accepting that throwaway work is a natural part of the process. By the time I handed this book into my editor, I'd cut more than 100 pages of material. 
but it took me seeing those paragraphs on the page to know they didn't work. Adjusting them wasn't going to remove the fuzziness. I had to scrap them and start over. If the idea of throwaway work is as off-putting to you as it initially was to me, then maybe Sean Ryan's story will help. As a struggling television writer, Ryan wrote 16 teleplays on spec, and not only did none of them make it uh, on the air, they didn't even earn him a dime. But by the time he wrote his last two, one for NYPD Blue, the other for The Larry Sanders Show, Ryan says he finally found his voice. Those scripts caught the attention of the creative Nash Bridges, a crime drama starring Don Johnson. They gave Ryan his first staff job as a professional writer. During his free time, Ryan kept writing and incubating new ideas. He began to build conviction for a new idea about a rogue cop named Vic Mackey, who leads the LAPD strike team and is also being investigated for corruption. FX brought the show and Ryan became creator and showrunner for The Shield. It received six Emmy nominations and became one of the first television shows to lure movie stars like Glenn Close and and Forrest Whitaker to the small screen. Ryan became known around Hollywood as an overnight success, but the the truth is it took him years of throwaway work. When I asked Ryan about all the other scripts, he told me that none of that effort was wasted because it all led him to the shield. His advice to up-and-coming writers or anyone with an idea, do the work before you share with the outside world. You need to be the most passionate advocate. You need to be inspired before you inspire anyone else. In other words, be willing to do the work necessary to convince yourself first. They're just two and a half pages, so I'll I'll power through. Measure your emotional runway. In the startup world, one of the things we obsess about is financial runway, having enough money in the bank to keep making progress and payroll. But what we don't talk about enough is emotional runway. This is the energy we have left to keep pushing a new idea forward. Over the years, I've seen more founders run out of energy than run out of money. Bringing a new idea into the world requires a tremendous amount of stamina, You're on the receiving end of doubts, conflicts, and deadlines, and yet you're still required to maintain a high level of conviction and confidence. The only way your energy stays high is if it's replenished by your own passion for the idea. Intellectual interest is important, but it's rarely enough. You need to be emotionally invested. Psychologists have long argued that our brain is made up of two systems, a rational system and an emotional system. In his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, that's H-A-I-D-T. Interesting how it's another book on happiness after we read Happier and after, you know, I talk about love what you do in Forever Change. So it's all coming back to that, right? Uh, Describes these systems as a rider on top of an elephant. Your rider represents your rational side that likes to analyze problems, weigh options, and argue solutions. But it's your elephant the more emotional side that gives you the energy to keep running with a new idea. It's an interesting analogy. In the early days of a new concept, we might be completely in tune with our elephant. We get excited about a vision, a possibility, but as we dig deep into practicalities like the business model and operations, our rider takes over. We become fixated on the logic of an idea and often lose sight of the emotion. But convincing yourself requires both. It's not enough to figure out whether your idea fits the market. You have to figure out whether an idea fits you. Does it stoke something deep inside you? Lynn manuel Miranda says, He falls in love for a living. 
Ideas like Hamilton take years to create. So Miranda says when you have an idea, you really have to fall in love with it. And backers can tell when you're in love with your idea. That's why investors are often attracted to founders with a personal attachment to their business. Margit uh, Wenmuckers, an operating partner at venture capital firm and Andreessen Horowitz, recently told me about Propel, P-R-O-P-E-L, a startup that helps low-income Americans manage their food stamps. When the founder, Jimmy Chen, pitched the partners on the idea, it was clear his emotional ties to the subject ran deep, partly because when he was growing up, his family sometimes struggled to put food on the table. You don't need personal history in order to feel personal passion. Put your, put your, idea, put your ideas... What? So put. But your ideas need to strike an emotional chord. Davis Guggenheim, the Oscar-winning director of An Inconvenient Truth and Inside Bill's Brain, told me, all we, told me we all have different voices in our head. He says his clever voice is always saying things like, that's a cool shot, or no one's ever done that before. But Guggenheim says he does his best to tune out his clever voice and tune in how an idea makes him feel. If something keeps me up at night, if something makes me angry or makes me cry, those raw instinctual attachments have never let me down. So, as you're figuring out whether an idea fits you, ask yourself if you've fallen in love with it. And as you dig in deeper, keep checking in with your elephant, paying attention to whether new challenges are fueling you or depleting you. This is the last paragraph um, or last half page. I can tell you I've been guilty of letting my rational rider completely take over. When I was considering a new startup, I created a spreadsheet of business ideas. The columns were all the classic entrepreneurial factors, things like market size, the bigger, the better, and competition, the smaller, the better. But when I shared the spreadsheet with a mentor, she asked me a simple question. Which one of these ideas lights you on fire? After scanning the spreadsheet, a harsh reality hit me. None of them did. At the time, I was working at Groupon, and all the ideas in my mind were related to e-commerce. But while I was intellectually interested in e-commerce, I wasn't in love with the market. Had I pursued one of those ideas, I would have quickly run out of emotional runway. I scrapped my spreadsheet and created a new one. This one didn't include factors like market size and competition. Column A listed ideas, and column B answered a simple question. In love? Yes or no? That exercise forced me to begin reflecting on ideas that truly made me come alive. And then I remembered how a nutritionist helped save my father's life. And we will stop there. And we're going to have to figure out more as it comes later. So hope you enjoy that. As I said, it was just kind of weird. I remember now that I think what happened with um, with Sunil is he I think he backed out of the show for whatever reason. Maybe because um, he didn't, you know, maybe because um, I didn't have enough views yet or um, I feel like it was something to do with that. And, um, well, maybe I just wasn't backable at the time. Um, But uh, I feel like I might have to reach out to him again and see um, if he maybe wants to come back. Who, Who knows? It's just interesting. Anyway, I just want to uh, hope you hope you all have a wonderful day. 
Uh, come back tomorrow. It's uh, No Agenda Friday. would love to have all of you on stage because I was away for like a week to 10 days. So I want to hear what's been going on, what's been going on in crypto and Web3, you know, um, and just in your lives, what's, what's interesting, what's got your attention, uh, what you are in love with. Um, and um, talk to you soon. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.